The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. love aliens. And we're in. We're in. Welcome to Mystery Team Inc., the podcast where there's a present outside your front door. What? There's a present outside your front door. How did it get there? Santa. Did you leave it? (laughs) Go get it. Oh my God. What the hell? Oh my God. The best part is that. Kayla has a ring doorbell, so I'm not sure how I pulled this off. I mean, I waved at the ring doorbell when I dropped it off. This is truly one of the creepiest things that has ever happened. (laughs) Did you just come leave this at my door today? Yeah. And I didn't even notice? No, I waved at your ring doorbell. I was, like, hoping I would get, like, have, like, a Sasquatch moment on your doorbell. That shit's not on. (laughs) Oh, well, that's why you didn't notice. Well, usually I can hear the gate swing open. Ha <laughs> I'm a stealthy secret spy. All right. I'm okay. Do you have some words before I open this mysterious package? Yeah, yeah. You can, un- you can open it and I'll just explain. Well, open it first and then I'll explain. I want to describe this really quickly. So there it's, it's brown paper tied with string like... Mm-hmm. I'm like these are a few of my favorite things few, yeah uh, there's a post-it note that says don't open until recording in what looks to be my handwriting <laughs> <laughs> our handwriting is too similar correct <laughs> all right okay there's a stamp on it it says dnm leather studio so oh i was looking at our um our first podcast that we have posted and we're actually going to address this at some point, but a lot of people have asked us about the lost episodes. Episodes one through four are considered the lost episodes, and there is a story behind oh them, God, but we'll get is, that's for another day. This is so cute. So I was looking at our podcast, and I realized that technically our podiversary is actually July 1st of 2018, oh, which makes right. this our three-year podiversary, oh. and the third, third anniversary is the leather anniversary. Oh. So... This is it's reclaimed leather, um, yeah. but it's a composition notebook holder. So it's like a journal, but you, every time you fill a composition book, you just archive it and put in a new one. And Kayla likes to take all of her notes by hand. So and I do them. I do them in in college ruled, correct? <laughs> composition notebooks. Yes, she does. And I just finished one. Perfect. And it says Mr. Team Inc. on the front. Oh, thank you so much. Isn't that so cute? I love it so. <laughs> I had to get you because you always get me with the anniversary gifts. Oh, hot <laughs> anniversary gifts. I didn't even realize. Oh yeah, I forgot that we released it on July first. Yeah, I don't even know why we like what the rhyme or reason was for that. But the first episode that's available was released on July first. So, the DB Cooper anniversary. How lame am I that I released an episode of the podcast on my birth? <laughs> like, like as if we didn't have better things to yeah. do. <laughs> So yeah, happy third podiversary. Thank you. I love this. I'm so excited. I'm excited for you. <laughs> <laughs> um also, we have a, a bit of business. It was we were gonna announce it last week, but we had to make a very important announcement, so we pushed it to this week. Um but we have joined Wizard Studios. Woo woo! We're very excited. Um 
yeah, it's always been our dream to join a network and we joined a network and we're really excited to be working with them. They're super cool. Um, they're part of wizard radio and yeah, we're just like thrilled to be partnering with them. So yeah, the team is ever expanding. Yeah. And I think that's all my business. Do you have any business? I don't even have any. Great. Should we quack a beer? Yeah. To our third anniversary and to joining the network? Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations and welcome to the team wizard. Woo! Mm. Um, fabulous. I'm so excited to hear your mystery. Oh my God. This one is a doozy. I am doing this one because someone requested it on TikTok and then I had it on my list for a while and I was just like, no, this should be a full episode. So this is the incredibly complicated, twisted story of the Bear Brook murders. Are you familiar with this at all? No, I'm scared. (laughs) So our story begins in 1985 in a little town called Allenstown, New Hampshire, with a population of 4,300. Bear Brook State Park is 15 square miles, and it covers more than half of Allenstown. In Allenstown, there is a trailer park called Bear Brook Gardens that butts up to the line of Bear Brook State Park. In Bear Brook Gardens Trailer Park, there were a lot of people moving in and out all the time, and it was like a lot of young families with kids like just starting out or staying there just for a short period of time while they got on their feet. And it was like such a small town that the kids would just like run around and their parents would not ask any questions. <laughs> like sure. they would just, you know, which is a little bit my dream childhood that like we could never have because we lived in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> yeah. So that summer, Jesse Morgan, who was 11 years old, and his friends from Bear Brook Gardens Trailer Park had invented a game that they would play in the woods near their homes, which was basically hide and seek, but the seeker was on a four-wheeler. <laughs> sure. So one day they were out in the woods playing four-wheeler hide and seek, and Jesse was on the four-wheeler and his friends Scott and Keith were hiding. And he heard Keith cry out and he went and found them and they were standing next to this 55-gallon blue steel drum. And Mm -mm. the... I know. Kids, stay away from steel drums. (laughs) Unless you're learning to play them as part of the orchestra. Even then, maybe stay away from them. Kids, stay away from steel drums. Yeah. Full stop. So the lid of the drum was on, but there was plastic poking through. And... I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this anymore. (laughs) So Keith (laughs) tried to pull the plastic and they were hit with. No. They were hit with a very strong smell of rotting milk. No. It was, in Jesse's words, the most rancid smell he had ever smelled. So because they were 11-year-old boys, they kicked it over. No. And something started to leak out. And they were like, meh, it's probably rotten milk. And they just left. A few months later, on November 10th, 1985, Ron Mount Plazer was the only cop on duty in Allenstown. Allenstown was so small that they only ever had one policeman on duty. And Ron says that they mostly responded to noise complaints and domestic disturbances. And there were never any homicides, never any shootings. And that day, Ron got a call from dispatch saying a hunter found a barrel in the woods and he would like you to take a look at it. So Ron went out to the location and finds, in his words, quote, a white man with a shotgun, which understandably made him uneasy. Yeah, those are native to the woods. (laughs) He found him in his natural environment. That's where you're most likely to find a white man with a shotgun. If you see them, make yourself really big and back away. (laughs) (laughs) So he was like, okay, you wait at my cruiser and I will go look at the barrel without you. Please don't follow me. 
and he locked his shotgun in his trunk. Yeah, very smart. So he went to the barrel, and he was thinking that maybe someone had been what's called jacking deer, which I learned means when you are hunting deer out of season or without a license. So he thought someone was maybe jacking deer and then left like the carcass in a barrel so they wouldn't get caught. So he got to the barrel and it was obviously still tipped over from when Jesse and his friends kicked it over. Keith. (laughs) And he kind of peeked inside and he saw human remains. No. So he immediately called for backup. And while he was waiting, he was like, um, okay, I've never had to deal with this before. Like, what's the first thing that w- cops do? And he was like, okay, I have to, like, rope off the perimeter. That's the first time I've ever heard of a cop actually doing that. <laughs> In all these stories, it's always like, and then I called the local press and said, come on through, boys. And everyone walked around and stiffy, stimpy stomped on the ground. And, <laughs> and we told the victims to have all their friends over. Yes. so he was like okay i'm gonna rope off the crime scene but he was in the middle of the woods and there was like nothing around so he was like so what is like the what's the perimeter here (laughs) he just kind of like like walked kind of far and was like this seems fine this is like if we were (laughs) law enforcement (laughs) philosophically speaking what is the perimeter here (laughs) He also didn't have any police tape because the department never needed any, so they never ordered any. I was just about to ask. Like, (laughs) he didn't have, like, a kit of some kind, I feel. No. He should have, like, a kit. He did not know that police tape existed. So he just used, like, some rope and, like, tied off what he thought was an appropriate area. (laughs) Making do with the best with what you have. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Yes. So there were so few officers in Allenstown that they ended up having to deputize Jesse's dad so that he could I thought you were going to say the hunter with the shotgun. No. (laughs) They were just like, "Uh, you're a cop now. And just like put a little badge on him. He's just standing out in the woods saying no words, just like staring blankly into the distance. He's like, this is my beat now. (laughs) So they deputized Jesse's dad. So that he could um, be, like, in charge of keeping the press away. Once the officers got to the scene, they found that the barrel contained two bodies. Mm-mm. A young woman and a little girl. No! Both had been dismembered and both were wrapped in plastic tied with electrical wire. The ME determined their causes of death to be blunt force trauma to the head and determined that they had been in the barrel for anywhere from several months to several years. Cops couldn't find any physical evidence or clues on the bodies or the barrel or in the area surrounding it. Um, So the New Hampshire State Police got to work trying to identify the woman and the child. And the Allenstown Police Department started canvassing the town. So in Allenstown, it was such a small town that everyone knew everyone. So everyone knew everything about everyone. And police went around and asked just like, does anybody know anything about what's happening? And they said that it was very strange when they discovered that nobody knew anything about anything. The state police looked through missing persons records for reports that might match the woman and the child. They found nothing. They looked at five years of campground records and found nothing. They sent out nationwide bulletins to law enforcement agencies. They searched the FBI databases. They found nothing. In 1986, composite sketches of the victims were made and circulated. Um, They released information that the woman had been in her mid to late 20s and the child was 9 or 10. And then... In 1987, with no leads, state police released the victims' bodies to be buried, and the chief organized a funeral. The parishioners of St. John the Baptist Church in Allenstown pooled their money and paid for a gravesite at their church's cemetery. A Catholic priest and a Methodist minister led the ceremony, and the bodies were laid to rest in steel caskets under a headstone that read, 
Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl child aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10, 1985 in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace in God's loving care. And with that, the case went cold. Until 2002. Detective John Cody was assigned to the New Hampshire State Police Major Crimes Unit. In the Major Crimes Unit, detectives are given a few cold cases that they're expected to work when they aren't working on an active case. John Cody was given a case about two bodies found in a barrel in Bear Brook State Park who were still unidentified, and it just, like, wormed into his brain. So after obsessing over the case for a while, he decided one Friday to go drive over to Bear Brook State Park and look at the scene where the barrel was found. He brought the case file as a map, and he arrived in the late afternoon. He started at the site where the barrel was found and slowly widened his search, walking in circles. Who put all this rope here? (laughs) Why didn't they use police tape? Um, Around dusk, John Cody came across a 55-gallon blue steel drum. Kayla, oh my God, you're giving me the heebie-jeebies. I hate this so much. He was 300 feet away from where the first barrel was found in 1985. No, 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 no. We should not be in the woods. No one should ever be in the woods. That's I'm I'm taking a stance on this now. No one should ever be in the woods. Don't go to the woods. (laughs) Just don't go to the woods. So John Cody called for backup, and they discovered that inside the second barrel were the remains of two young girls, one two years old and one four years old, both wrapped in plastic tied with electrical wire. They sent the remains to the same Emmy who examined the young woman and the little girl found in 1985. That Emmy confirmed that the two young girls that they had just found had also died of blunt force trauma to the head. So they exhumed the bodies of the young woman and the girl aged 9 to 10, and they ran DNA tests. And it turned out that the young woman was the mother of the oldest child and the youngest child, and that none of those three were related to the middle child. What? So police re-interviewed everyone. They reopened the case. They searched national missing persons records. They combed back through everything. And once again, they found nothing. They sent the skulls to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to get updated reconstructions. And, by the way, if you want to donate to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, there is a link in our TikTok bio. So they released these updated images, and nobody came forward. In 2011, an amateur investigator named Rhonda Randall became obsessed with the Bear Brook murders case. Rhonda is a social worker, and in her free time, she's a genealogist specializing in adoption and reuniting adopted people with their birth families. Wait, that's like her side hobby? That's her hobby. No, I need a real hobby. I know. Here I am with my stress relief coloring books. (laughs) (laughs) So she and her brother Scott began looking into the Bear Brook case. That summer... They decided that they needed to go to Bear Brook State Park and see the scene for themselves. No. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) So when they got there, they learned that the land the barrels were found on is actually not technically part of Bear Brook State Park. The land is actually a small strip of private property between Bear Brook Gardens Trailer Park and the Bear Brook State Park land owned by a man named Ed Gallagher. Ed Gallagher had run a little camp store there in the early 1980s that was like a little convenience store that people who were camping in the park and people who lived in the trailer park would go to. The store burned down in 1983, and now the land was just like, all that's on it is the foundation of the burned down store and like what looks to be a dump site. And so Rhonda started bugging John Cody on Facebook. (laughs) And she was like, are you the officer investigating the Bear Brook murder? Are you this guy? Are you the officer? Are you in charge? And then finally he was like, what? Yes. Yes. What? And she was like, we have learned so much. So they started sharing their information with the New Hampshire State Police. She also 
started talking to Ed Gallagher and like asking him questions and like trying to get information out of him. And finally, after like three years of bugging him, he finally said, you know what? You are barking up the wrong tree. You should go look at Bob Evans. Yes. And they were like, who the fuck is Bob Evans? So they went and asked around. Turns out Bob Evans arrived in New Hampshire in the 70s and was hired to work as an electrician, helping to shut down one of the old mill buildings in downtown Manchester, New Hampshire. It was like this crew of men who would go in and like uh, dismantle all of the old equipment and like take it out in a safe way. I just want to say that what you've described up to this point is exactly the cold open and act one of a Law and Order episode. Like, we just got to the part where they, like, track down the guy that owns the land, and he's like, you ought to talk to Bob Evans. And they're, and then it's like, dun-dun. Like, that's the act break. They're like, who's Bob Evans? And then we pick up with Bob Evans, like, at a steel mill, and he's like, I don't know nothing about no little girls. And they're like, we, did we say something about a little girl? He's, like, holding gear and, like, moving it in, like, a very Yes, he's just walking back and forth. Action. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the whole time I was researching this, I was like, this is... This could be an episode. It is, yeah. The story structure is flawless. Yeah. So it was in this old mill that he met Ed Gallagher, who then hired him to do some electrical work at the camp store in Bear Brook. So Rhonda and Scott went looking in old records for Bob Evans. They even checked the records from the New Hampshire Board of Electricians, and they didn't find anything. Hmm. Like Bob Evans just disappeared mm-hmm. and the case went cold suspicious but cold <laughs> the case went suspicious but cold. <laughs> so i'm gonna take you back now to back to 1986 this time we are in california yes i love nonlinear storytelling <laughs> it's the only way to do it it's the only way to do this mystery so in 1986 a man named Gordon Jensen arrived in an RV park in Scotts Valley, California, with his five-year-old daughter, Lisa. The trailer park was called Holiday Host RV Park because it used to be a Christmas-themed theme park called Santa's Village. Nice. Gordon Jensen and Lisa were living out of a small truck camper, and Gordon was working around the RV park. While he was working, he left Lisa with an older couple named Richard and Catherine Decker, who were from San Bernardino, and they were staying at the RV park for a few months while Richard was working in the area. The Deckers had a young grandson who played with Lisa, and they began to care about Lisa like she was their own granddaughter. They also noticed that Lisa was very thin, she didn't have any toys, and it seemed like living out of the back of a truck was, like, not great for a five-year-old. Sure. So... Gordon Jensen eventually told the Deckers that Lisa's mother had died of cancer when she was a baby and that he was finding it very, very difficult to take care of a five-year-old on his own. Mm. And the Deckers were like, what a coincidence. Our daughter in San Bernardino is having trouble conceiving and she's looking to adopt. So they arranged a trial adoption in which the Deckers would take Lisa to their daughter for three weeks. If it worked out, they would come back and make the adoption official. So they took Lisa to San Bernardino, and she hadn't been there long when she started showing signs of extreme abuse, and she started telling them what her father had done to her. So the Deckers were like, we got to get these papers signed right now. Yeah. So they went back up to the RV park, and Gordon Jensen had disappeared. So eventually they went to the police, and they took Lisa to the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office. They all were questioned, and Lisa was taken into custody. And the Sheriff's Office said, told them that they had saved her life. So she went into foster care and was eventually adopted. The San Bernardino Sheriff's Office issued an arrest warrant for Gordon Jensen for child molestation and child abandonment. But when detectives tried to track down Gordon Jensen, they hit a dead end. The truck he and Lisa had lived in had a Texas license plate, but when they ran the plate, it turned out it was registered to an address that was a hotel room. The social security number he had used to apply for his job at the RV park was fake, but they managed to pull a print from a projector he had fixed at the RV park, and they ran it, and it 
did not come back as Gordon Jensen. It came back as belonging to a man named Curtis Kimball. Hmm. And Curtis Kimball had an arrest record. He had been arrested a few months before he and Lisa arrived at the RV park for drunk driving. And Lisa had been in the car with him. But then beyond that arrest, the record on Curtis Kimball also went dead and they couldn't find him. I know I never say this, but that was good police work pulling that print off that projector. Good jobs, you guys. Good jobs. <laughs> I've, I so rarely compliment the police on police work that I didn't even know how to say it. Good jobs, <laughs> you guys. Your brain short circuited. So in 1988, a man named. Gerald Mockerman. These are the worst aliases. <laughs> I swear to God. That's like cat stapler. <laughs> like you just looked at the stuff in the room. So a man named Gerald Mockerman was arrested for driving a stolen car in San Luis Obispo, California. They printed him and his prints came back as Curtis Kimball. A.K.A. A.K.A. Gordon Jensen. Correct. And the cops were like, uh, so it seems this guy is wanted for child abandonment and child molestation. So they booked him, and he took a plea deal. He pled guilty to child abandonment in return for the molestation and stolen vehicle charges being dropped. He was sentenced to three years. He served a year and a half before being let out on parole. And then he immediately skipped town and missed his first parole hearing, and police lost track of Curtis Kimball. Damn it! <laughs> God fucking damn it. God damn it. Yeah. It just makes me so furious. I know. And the most frustrating part is that they're like doing a good, they're not ne- being negligent at all. Well, okay. No, I disagree because the fact that they let him plead out of a child molestation charge is, I think that's bad. <laughs> like the DA fucked that up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but that's not the detectives. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm not saying the cops. I'm saying the judicial system failed on that one. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Because they were like, oh, a highly repeatable offense? Did you want to just plead out of that one and take the DUI and just go to classes and call it good? <laughs> cool. We'll see you tomorrow, right? You're going to be there, though, right? For sure, for sure. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, totally. And then the next day, they were like, they texted him like, where are you at? <laughs> you on your way? <laughs> No, they just texted, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, uh, I'm that's here. so weird. He unmatched us. <laughs> it's sending green? I don't know. <laughs> what does that mean? God damn it. You guys. Uh... Okay. We're doing another time and location jump. Great. Hop in my crime, Tardis. <laughs> the chrono crime uh, bot. <laughs> The chrono detective. Yeah. All right. So now we are in Contra Costa, California, in the year of our Lord, 2002. (laughs) That really was a year of our Lord. (laughs) So at this time, Roxanne Gruenheide, a homicide detective in Contra Costa, gets a call. A woman named Renee Rose is reporting her friend, Unsoon June, missing. Now, in 1999, Unsoon's cousin, Elaine Ramos, invited her to a New Year's Eve Y2K party. And Unsoon was like, can I bring my new boyfriend? And Elaine was like, absolutely. I can't wait to meet him. At the time, Unsoon was what her friends and family called a, quote, free spirit. She traveled a lot and she, like, explored cult- new cultures and religions. She worked as a chemist at a biotech company in Richmond, Virginia. Elaine said, quote, as much as she was spiritual and loved meeting people, she was lonely. She didn't find the love of her life, and I think that opened her up to being vulnerable to meeting people who could take advantage of her. In 1999, she was 40 years old, and pressure was mounting for her to meet someone and settle down. She needed some work done on her house, and an acquaintance recommended a handyman named Larry Vanner, and she hired him, and from there, it somehow turned into a serious relationship. No, it's always a handyman. Nobody ever fix anything in your home, either. No woods, no small repairs. No. No. <laughs> no woods and no small repairs. <laughs> Words to live by. So when Unsoon told Elaine that she was bringing a boyfriend to her party, it was like a big deal. 
So on the night of the party, Unsoon arrived at the party with Larry Vanner, and they drove up in a dirty white windowless van. And Elaine says that his face sent chills down her spine that she had never experienced before. And when he went to shake her hand, he had long, creepy, dirty fingernails. She said he was ragged and dirty and much older than Unsun and bald and had a weird, creepy mustache. And the only inviting thing about him was he had these like sparkling, deep blue eyes. But Unsun was like over the moon happy. So Elaine was like, I guess I'll try to get to know him. So at one point in the party, Elaine was sitting across a bar from Larry and she asked him about himself and he said that he was a retired colonel in the army and she was like oh my god that's crazy my boss is a retired colonel maybe you know each other and Larry's whole demeanor changed in an instant and he leaned over the bar and he got super close to her and he said don't ever question me or ask me again about my past seems normal yeah right and then he like brightened up and smiled and continued to make small talk like nothing happened also, wait, I'm sorry to go back to this. Did you say that they rolled up in a white windowless van and he said his name was Larry Vanner? <laughs> I'd never even put that together. Are you fucking kidding me? Once again, that's just like a you were just looking at what was next to you. <laughs> like so bad at the aliases. So bad. Come on. So Elaine noted some other weird stuff about Larry Vanner. He said that he owned property all over the West Coast, but he had never taken Unsoon to any of them, and he, like, couldn't give an explanation as to why. Um, He casually mentioned at one point that he used to work for the CIA and that he could disappear if he needed to. And then at the end of the night, Elaine offered them a bed in her house because they had all been drinking and she didn't want them driving. And Unsun was like, oh, my God, don't even worry about it. We're going to sleep in the van. And Elaine went outside with them and saw that the back of the van had like a pillow and some dirty blankets in it. And she was like, what? And Unsun was like, I love it. Don't even worry. Van life. Follow us on TikTok. <laughs> Hashtag van life. So the next day, Unsun called Elaine and was like, so what did you think? And Elaine was like, well, he was super weird and I tried to get to know him and he wouldn't let me. And please, please, before you get too involved, make sure he's telling you the truth. And Unsoon got angry and she was like, nobody wants me to be happy. I finally found somebody who loves me and everybody is like trying to tear us apart. Ladies. Everyone wants you to be happy. Yes. This is never what it is. If your friends are shitting on the dude, there's a 99% chance that dude is a serial killer. It has nothing to do with your happiness. I promise. No woods, no small, small repairs. Trust your friends. I really like this list of lessons. So Unsun began to drift away from her family. Elaine wasn't the only one who disapproved of Larry. And when people tried to talk to her about it, it only made things worse. Her brother got multiple emails and letters from her saying that she didn't want anything more to do with the family. Nobody wanted her to be happy, leave her alone, and let her live her life. And they said it seemed like she was under a spell and it did not sound like her. So at the time, Unsun was very close with Renee Rose, whom she had met at a pottery class at the community center. And one day in 2001, she told Renee that she had told this guy, Larry, that he could move in with her. And Renee was like, this dude is so icky. What does she see in him? That same year, they got married. It wasn't like they didn't have like a marriage certificate, but they had a little ceremony in someone's backyard. It was Star Trek themed. But then after a couple months, Unsun began to have doubts. And she said to Renee, like, why am I supporting this guy? He doesn't do anything. He just like sits around. He doesn't work. Like, he's such a drain. What am I doing? Then, one day, Renee called Unsun's house to talk about the details for a trip they were going on the following week. Unsun sounded anxious, and she was talking very fast and in very short sentences. She ended the conversation abruptly and said she would call the next day. But she didn't call the next day, and she did not show up for the trip a few days later. 
So Renee called and she left message after message. And after a few days, Larry finally called her back and said that Unsun's mother was very sick and she had gone back to Virginia to see her. And Renee asked for a way to get in touch with her there. And he said there's no way to contact her there. So Renee kept calling for the next few weeks. And every time he answered, Larry had a new excuse as to why she couldn't speak to Unsun. He said she was too emotionally drained to talk. He said her family had made her depressed. He said she was in Virginia. He said she was in Oregon. One time he told her she had come home, but only for a day. And then she had left again. And Renee was like, yeah, obviously none of that is true. Something is very wrong. So finally, she gave him an ultimatum. She was going on a trip for 10 days and she wanted to hear Unsen's voice on her answering machine when she got back. And if not, she would go to the authorities. And when she got back, there was no message from Unsun. But she did have a message from Larry saying, Unsun doesn't like you anymore. She doesn't want to talk to you ever again. And in fact, she told the sheriff to keep you away from her. So Renee called the sheriff and was like, listen to this. And they were like, yeah, no, she never did that. And Renee was like, yeah, I didn't think so. And they were like, okay, we're on it. So Roxanne Gunhide and Michael Costa were put on the case. The first thing they wanted to do was get in touch with Larry Banner to ask him how to get in touch with Unsoon and to make sure she was okay. At the time, he was still living at Unsoon's house, and they asked him to come in and give a statement. So they sat him in this tiny room and questioned him, and he gave detectives absolutely nothing of consequence. He just gave them, like, completely empty platitudes, like, quote, I've always tried to live by the model that there is no defense against the truth, but sometimes it's hard to find out what the truth is. You got one side and the other side and something down the middle that people might perceive to be the truth. And he just like said shit like that for hours. And he would like go off on all these unrelated tangents and tell all these stories. And the detectives would be like, okay, well, maybe this is leading somewhere. And then it just like would go nowhere. Roxanne described it as, quote, talking about everything except the thing that needs to be talked about. He was just filling space. It's like foam in a void. It doesn't mean anything. I love foam in a void. I was just thinking, like, I want to use, use that. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, unbelievable. So finally, Larry goes, okay, the real reason Unsun is in Oregon is because she's seeing a therapist because she suffered a mental breakdown. He said that a call from the police would trigger an anxiety attack, and so they gave him a phone. He dialed a number from memory, didn't talk to anyone, and hung up. And because they were watching him on tape, they were able to figure out what the number was. So they, of course, called the number, and the number went to a psychiatrist's office in Eugene, Oregon. And they were like, we want to know if you're treating this patient. And the doctor was like, I can't tell you that. And they were like, okay, what if we just describe a person and then you tell us if you're treating anyone who fits that description? And the doctor was like, yeah, I can do that. So they described Unsun. And the psychiatrist said that he was not treating anyone who fit that description. So then they ran Larry's date of birth and the full name he gave them, Lawrence William Vanner. And instead of coming back with a driver's license, as they expected, it came back with something called an index number. An index number is a placeholder for someone's identity and official records that is assigned to people who don't have a valid form of ID. And they found nothing else in their system on Lawrence William Vanner. So they asked Larry if he would come with them to the crime lab nearby to be fingerprinted. And he was like, yeah, totally, 100%. Let's go right now. So in the car on the way there, Roxanne sat in the back with him and tried to make small talk in an attempt to get some information out of him about himself. She started talking about how people in California often commented on her Long Island accent. And she was like, you sound like you have an accent, but I can't place it. Where are you from? And he stopped dead and looked right at her and he got really close and he said, that's none of your damn business. And then he like switched back to small talk. And she said that the change was so fast, it was like a light switch. So they fingerprinted Larry and they took him back to the station and the results had beaten them there. And Larry Vanner's fingerprints belonged to Curtis Kimball. Curtis Kimball, fugitive, 
on the run for violating parole in the case of his abandonment and abuse of his five-year-old daughter, Lisa. Roxanne said that he probably didn't realize that technology had advanced to the point that it (laughs) only takes a matter of hours, not days, to get the fingerprints back. Mm -hmm. And he probably thought that he would have time to skip town before the results came back, but Mm -hmm. he was 100% wrong. So he asked for an eternity. (laughs) (laughs) And he got it. (laughs) He got it. So he asked for an attorney. And this is where we're going to take a break. This is a perfect act break. This is the end of act two. I really paid attention to story structure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well... I'm floored. I can't wait to see what dumb names and more (laughs) decisions I can lecture the youth about come up after this. (laughs) We'll be right back after these messages. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And we're back. And we're back. Welcome to Soothing Existential Nighttime Radio. Was it smart to try to think up a joke on the spot? Or are you really as capable of being funny as you think you are? And later, how far do you have to run to escape yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. All right. Are you ready to jump back in? Barely. That's fine. (laughs) Just sit back and enjoy the ride. Great. So when we last left our heroes, they had fingerprinted Larry Vanner, and it had come back as Curtis Kimball, and he had asked for an eternity. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, I remember. (laughs) You have to leave that in now. You know, right? You can't cut that, I cannot believe. Why is my brain doing that? I'm looking at the word attorney. It's right. And I and my brain is just like he asked for an eternity. I never realized how close those words are because they're not spelled the same. At all. I don't know what's happening to me. <laughs> he asked for an eternity, but he pled down to uh, the foreseeable future. <laughs> he pled down to the foreseeable future. <laughs> That's really good. So in California, parolees are subject to police searches for any reason, at any time, no warrant needed. So now that they had him in custody for violating his parole, they could legally search his home without a warrant. So Roxanne and Michael went to Unsun's house. They knocked at the door. No one answered. So they entered. Now, they were doing a search for a missing person so they didn't like rifle through anything they didn't open any drawers or like touch anything they just like did a walkthrough of the house to see if she was there they said the house was filthy and they noted that there was a distinct lack of any items belonging to a woman there were no women's shoes no women's clothes no purses nothing But nothing was, like, actively alarming other than that. So they went outside, and Roxanne went to the shed in the backyard while Michael went to the garage. Mm. Roxanne noticed that it looked like someone had recently tried to dig up the dirt floor of the shed. No. In the garage, Michael found a pottery studio. There were, like, big kilns, and the walls were lined with shelves full of pottery in various stages. In the back of the garage, there was a door that led down a few steps into an unfinished basement slash crawl space. No, no, no. Never go into an unfinished basement. So Michael went down the stairs and to the left, he saw what looked to him like a giant pile of sand. And so he called for Roxanne. Further in, they saw tools a reciprocating saw, and a small axe. 
They also saw what looked like blood splatter on the wall next to the furnace above the pile of sand. And then they saw a pile of empty kitty litter bags. Mm -mm. They swiped away some of the pile of kitty litter and they found Mm -mm. a mummified foot. No. Still in a rubber flip-flop. Nope. So they called for backup. The pile of cat litter was two to three feet high, four to five feet around, and made of about 250 pounds of cat litter. The body in the pile of cat litter was fully mummified and therefore unrecognizable, but appeared to be Unsun's size. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and she had been dismembered. So they charged Curtis Kimball with Unsun's murder. And Roxanne was like, I mean, obviously Curtis Kimball is a fake name too. So she did some digging, and she got her hands on his California Department of Corrections central file, and in there she found police reports, forensics, documents, records, and notes. And she saw that he had gone by the name Gordon Jensen at one point and became interested in the child abandonment case. The reports said that Gordon Jensen had told some people that Lisa's mother had died of cancer. A different group said that he told them that Lisa's mother had been killed in a robbery that had gone bad. One story was that she was running out of a robbery and then was hit by a car and killed. Roxanne also found that when Lisa had been taken into custody, they had drawn blood to try to do a paternity test with Gordon Jensen, but had never done the test. So Roxanne was like, I'll do the fucking test then. Like, come on. Ladies, if you want something done right. (laughs) You have to do it yourself. (laughs) Correct. So Curtis Kimball goes to trial for the murder of Unsoon June. He pleads not guilty. The trial was notably difficult for Unsoon's family because for many of them, the last conversation they'd had with her had been an argument about the man now standing trial for her murder. They said that he had so successfully isolated her from her family that they were grieving someone that they hadn't spoken to in years. They also learned that the emails sent by Unsoon disconnecting herself from the family that didn't sound like her hadn't sounded like her because she had not written them. Larry Vanner, a.k.a. Curtis Kimball, had written them. So the first day of trial went as expected. The prosecution thought they had a pretty strong case. And then the second day, Curtis Kimball stood up and announced that he was changing his plea to guilty. So he willingly accepted a sentence of 15 years to life for the murder of Unsun Jun. Roxanne thinks what happened is on the first day of the trial, she pulled the DA aside and was like, I'm looking into his past. I'm going to do a paternity test. Just like talent, keeping him up to date. And she thinks that Curtis Kimball overheard what she was saying and then changed his plea thinking that if he went to jail and the trial was over, then she would stop looking into his past. Uh, But she didn't. She got the paternity test back. It confirmed that Gordon Jensen, a.k.a. Gerald Mockerman, a.k.a. Curtis Kimball, a.k.a. Larry Vanner, was not Lisa's father. So Roxanne went down to Pleasant Valley State Prison to interview him, and he basically was just like, I'm an alcoholic. I was drinking so much back then. I was blacked out most of the time. I don't remember. They told me I had a daughter and they told me I gave her away, but I don't think I would do that. (laughs) So she was like, fuck this guy. I'm not going to get anything out of him. So she went to the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office and convinced them to reopen the case on Lisa's abandonment now that they knew that they basically just had a living Jane Doe on their hands. At this point, Lisa was 22 years old, but the case never actually went anywhere because they had no idea where to even start. And Curtis Kimball died in prison in 2010 without giving up any information. And the search for Lisa's identity went cold. I just remembered this is an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. I'm so mad. (laughs) No. Then in 2000, just... Hold your horses. I don't even know what we don't know yet. I'm mad. I know. <laughs> Damn it. So in 2013, Detective Peter Headley of San Bernardino Sheriff's Office took over the case. He looked back over the case 
with the knowledge that Gordon Jensen, a.k.a. Curtis Kimball, was very much capable of murder. And one thing stood out to him, which was that at the time, Lisa had been questioned by police and she had told them that she had other siblings, but they had died while they were camping by eating grass mushrooms. No. So he spent a year following leads that looked very promising, but they ended up going nowhere. And finally, in 2014, Lisa suggested that they use a genealogy website. And Detective Headley was apprehensive because no one had ever used a genealogy site to like solve a crime before. But he agreed. And they signed her up for Family Tree DNA, 23andMe, and GED Match. And they started getting hits for fourth and fifth cousins. But in order to trace her f- to her immediate family, starting from a fourth or fifth cousin, you have to go back up the family tree to find the common ancestor and then back down until you yeah. find the exact branch that she like belonged on. way yeah. back. Yeah. So... Hadley reached out to a nonprofit called DNAadoption.com, which used genetic genealogy to help adoptees find their biological parents. And DNAadoption.com sent their very best, Barbara Ray Ventner, who describes herself as a search angel and genetic genealogist. Barbara is another person who got into genealogy as a hobby. Um, She got into it after she retired, and it just turned out that she was really good at it. So she teamed up with Detective Headley. Barbara would build out the family tree until she hit a dead end. And then once she hit a dead end, Detective Headley would then reach out to the relatives closest to the dead end and ask them to please take a DNA test. And then those DNA tests would help them fill in the gaps and get around the dead ends in the family tree. Lisa's maternal family tree had 18,000 people on it. And her paternal family tree had 7,000 people on it. So they were searching a total of 25,000 people. Along the way, Barbara ended up recruiting some volunteers from the organization she worked for. And she also enlisted a lot of Lisa's newfound family members who, like, heard what they were doing and just said they would help. And love this. I love it. And then in the end, she had over 100 people building out Lisa's family tree and doing research. After a year, They narrowed down the possibilities for Lisa's mother to one person. And Barbara called Detective Headley, who searched the name, and he was like, that person doesn't exist. And Barbara was like, well, we know she does because we have her grandmother's obituary and her brother's obituary. And Peter realized, unfortunately, that that meant that she was probably dead. Uh, The databases they look at are made up of driver's licenses and voting records. So if a person hasn't driven or voted in a long time then they wouldn't show up. But 30 years after she was abandoned, they finally knew who Lisa was. Her name was Dawn Bowden, and she was from Manchester, New Hampshire. Her closest living relative was her grandfather, Armand Bowden. And Armand told them this story. Lisa's mother was his daughter, Denise Bowden. In 1981... Denise was 23 and living with her boyfriend and their newborn daughter, Dawn. But Armand suspected at the time that the boyfriend was not Dawn's father. That year, they went to Denise's parents' house for Thanksgiving dinner. And then a week later, Armand went to their house to invite them to Christmas dinner, and they were gone. And the neighbors told them that they had just packed up and left with no warning and no explanation. And their family never reported them missing because they thought Denise had left of her own accord. And they showed Armand Curtis Kimball's mugshot. And he was like, yeah, that's Denise's boyfriend, Bob Evans. No. Dung, dung. Recall, Bob Evans is the name of the man Ed Gallagher said had worked at the camp store in Bear Brook State Park in the late 70s. Yup. So the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children had been involved with Lisa's case as well. And when they heard that Lisa had actually disappeared from Manchester, New Hampshire, their ears pricked up. And they were like, we have a case from New Hampshire that's about 25 miles north of Manchester. 
Bob Evans left New Hampshire in 1981, and he worked at the camp store until he disappeared. And the first barrel was found in Bear Brook State Park near the camp store in 1985. So investigators were like, is the woman in the first barrel Denise Bowden? And they did a DNA test. And the woman in the barrel was not Denise Bowden. But on a hunch, they ran Bob Evans' DNA against the DNA of all four victims from the barrel. He was not related to the mother and her children, but he was the father of the middle child. <gasps> so what? now that they knew who was responsible for the Bear Brook murders, they had to figure out who Bob Evans really was because obviously that was also an alias. So Barbara Ray Ventner employed the same tactics she had used in identifying Lisa's family, and she found out who Bob Evans really was. Bob Evans' real name was Terry Peter Rasmussen. Terry Rasmussen was born on December 23, 1943, in Denver, Colorado. In 1960, he dropped out of high school and enlisted in the Navy. He married his wife, Fleta, in Hawaii, and when he was discharged in 1969, they moved to California. He has two children named Eric and Diane, and they remember a lot of turmoil and abuse in their home when they were children. Fleta said that the last straw for her was when she came home one night in 1975 and found cigarette burns on Eric's arm. He was five years old. So they packed up and left the next day while Terry was at work. And from then on, they moved every two to three months so that he couldn't find them. Good for her. Right? So now they knew who Terry was. What they did not know was the identities of the four victims found in the barrels in Bear Brook State Park in 1985 and 2000. Wait, and we also know who Lisa's mom is, but we don't know what happened to her, right? Correct. So in 2017, an internet sleuth named Rebecca Heath became obsessed with the story as well, and she became determined to give these people an identity. So she started looking in the missing family members' sections of ancestry sites. And she figured, like, somebody has to be looking for these people. We just need to find the people who are looking. They knew that the youngest girl and the oldest girl were maternally related to the adult female. But... They didn't know the paternal relation, so they could have been half-sisters. So she started using the terms half-sister and stepsister in her searches. And she found a post from 1999 written by a person looking for their half-sister, Sarah McWaters, Sarah's mother, Marlise Honeychurch, and Marlise's other daughter, Marie Vaughn. The girls had two different fathers, and all three of them were last seen between 1975 and 1978 in California. So Rebecca looked up the person who wrote the post on Facebook and reached out, and they began to talk, and she told Rebecca some more info about the case, and then she casually dropped the information that Marlise Honeychurch had been married to a man named Terry Rasmussen. No. So Rebecca contacted Peter Headley in San Bernardino and was like, I think that I found who was in the barrels. And they learned that the last time Marlise and her daughters were seen was by their family at a gathering at their mother's house in Southern California in 1976. And she had been there with her husband, Terry. And there had been an argument. And Terry was like, we're leaving. And they left. And they never saw them again. So we still don't know what happened to Denise Bowden or who the middle child in the barrels is. And every single person involved in the case is 100% sure there are more bodies of Terry Rasmussen's victims out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, Lisa's mom, probably, unfortunately. 100% Lisa's mom. And that's the story of the Bear Brook murders. What a fucking asshole. Yeah, he's a piece of garbage human being. Fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck I'm that so guy. I'm so mad. Yeah, he sucks. <laughs> he just is, like, the worst. Damn it. Yeah. Wow. Well, beautifully done, Kayla. Thank you. But also, fuck that guy. I'm so just mad. Just fuck, like, fuck that guy. <laughs> He sucks so much. He's just like pure evil. Yeah, I hate it. Um, everyone should donate to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, 
Also, there are resources for anyone who is experiencing spousal abuse or abuse of any kind in all of our social bios. Um, So if you just look at Mr. Team Inc. on Instagram or TikTok or wherever, there are links in our bios um, with resources. Is there like a tip line or something if like anyone has any information about this? So yeah, so if you have any information that you think might be related to the case, you can contact the New Hampshire State Police at 603-MCU-TIPS or Sergeant Matthew Kohler at the New Hampshire State Police Major Crime Unit at 603-223-3648 or at his email, which is matthew.kohler, K-O-E-H-L-E-R, at dos.nh.gov and we will put all of that in the episode notes as well yeah wild it's just so wild what a crazy story crazy well i hope you all found that as fascinating as we did because i found that fascinating yeah okay what remember on the old episodes we used to go what did we learn oh yeah that was cute let's do that what did we learn no woods no woods no unfinished no unfinished basements your friends are want you to be happy. Yeah, and if your friends don't want you to be happy, then they're not your friends, and there are multiple people you need to get rid of. Correct. And I think that's what we learned. That's, I think that's a good list of things to learn. I agree. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Fuck the buck up. Smooches. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.